Love Talk Radio. How y'all doing today? How y'all doing today? So, uh, I got a really big show for you. This is the final Kyle Kalinske show before the election. We, or I announced last night that uh, I'll be doing an election day special with Joe Rogan and Tim Dillon. Um, Alex Jones appears to have invited himself to our election day special. Who knows what the hell is going to go on if Alex Jones and I are in the same damn room. Uh, it will be fascinating, and we will all find out, or we will probably find out. I don't know how long Alex is going to be there, if he'll be there at all, but he really clearly wants to be there. Um, so this is the final Secular Talk Kyle Kalinske show before the election. So I'm packing in a little bit of extra stuff today because I do want to get to uh, everything, everything going on. I will give you... Stealing an idea here from Crystal Ball, who did best-case scenario and worst-case scenario under a Biden presidency in a second term of Trump. We're going to talk about that. I'm actually going to lead here in just a second with uh, what is basically an election prediction. Not really a prediction, but just a breakdown as to the, the range of scenarios that can unfold. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a lot to discuss. We're going to dive into all of it. I do have your news of the day as well, as always. Um, I'll show you Biden's closing ad. I'll show you uh, how Ted Cruz and a lot of the Republicans are abandoning Trump. Um, I got Obama in the show as, way to, uh, show as well today, and we're going to see whether or not he still got the election magic that he used to have. So anyway, without further ado, let's get started. So um, I want to go ahead and show you guys where we're at 
leading into the election. I want to give you the total picture, the complete breakdown. I want to give you what an absolute best case scenario for Biden would look like and what an absolute best case scenario for Trump would look like, as well as what the likely scenarios would look like being defined as, you know, what if the polls were just completely reflected on election day? So screenshot everything or or freeze frame everything right now. And then let's just say this is the outcome of the election. Who's ever up in whichever state, they win that state. I'll give you, you know, the total and complete um, breakdown. Now, before we dive into it, I'll show you some 538 stuff. I'll show you, again, best case, worst case. I just want to establish for a second that this is actually an exercise worth doing. So a lot of people will say, hey, I, don't, I just simply don't believe any polls. And, you know, that's a position a lot of people have after feeling completely burned in 2016 and basically investing emotional energy into what the polls were reflecting. Well, listen, I'm here to tell you to become a full-on poll truther is not the correct response because it's not really the polls that were so far off in 2016 as much as it was the pollsters who were so far off in 2016. So what I mean by that is Hillary Clinton had about a three or four point um, lead nationally going into election day. She ended up winning by about three million votes. So right within the margin of error for the popular vote, it was a slight swing in, in Trump's direction, but it was within the margin of error. Now, when you go to the state by state polls, there were some that were off, but they really weren't that far off. You have to remember Donald Trump won because he basically knocked off about 110,000 votes in the Rust Belt, and he was campaigning there in the, le- in the week leading up to the election nonstop. So it actually, like, in other words, it really makes perfect sense. He was running a pretty good campaign. Hillary was running a horrendous campaign. The stars aligned, and it all worked out. So I feel like a lot of people, their brains are broken in response to that, and now they say all polls should be thrown out. Well, listen, the first thing to say is you do know they already adjusted for whatever failures they had in 2016. And remember, it wasn't that many failures. It really wasn't. A lot of the polling was within the margin of error. It was the pollsters who were saying, oh, 98% chance of Hillary winning. They were wrong. The actual polls themselves were not that far off. And even in the case of, honestly, I don't like the guy, so it pains me to say this, but Nate Silver was the least wrong of all of them. So he, he had it on election day at about a 70% chance for Hillary winning, 30% chance for Trump winning. Now, you might say, well, he got it wrong. No, do you not understand probability? If you've ever played poker, you'll know exactly what a 30% chance is. It's pretty damn good. It is. I'm sorry. 70%. You'd rather be on the 70% side, but three out of 10 times, the 30% chance is going to win. That's a lot. That's not nothing. So anyway, listen, this is my setup to, to do this exercise with you. And so you'll understand not like a hardcore prediction, but more or less a range of that which is possible. So first, let me show you this here. This is um, Nate Silver's little snake chart. I don't know what to call this thing, but it shows you what the state of the race is right now. And it's actually very, very easy to understand. So you see the line there that says 270 electoral votes, and you see who's leading in these states. So 
if you look at Pennsylvania here, Biden's up, what, about six points? Five points, six points, something like that. Um, so if Biden wins Pennsylvania and then Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, New Hampshire, Colorado, all the way down the list here to the very, very safe states, um, it's over. So even if Trump picks off a bunch of states where he's down, Iowa, Georgia, North Carolina, Florida, Arizona, even if he picks those states off, he loses. So this, this shows you a little bit of the, of the trouble that Trump has going into this election because he really does have to outperform the polls in a way that he didn't even do in 2016 in order to win this election. So, which leads me to my next point. Um, so Nate Silver says that if you just take the very, very safe states that are almost layups right now, then Biden's already at 290 electoral votes. Also, the betting markets have Biden already at 290 electoral votes. You need 270 to win. So um, some more on that. We have the 2020 president consensus electoral map. This map aggregates the ratings of nine organizations to come up with a consensus forecast of the 2020 presidential election. So nine organizations. And here's what they say. They say Biden 290 already. 290 already. So they're basically saying it's kind of over already because he's already over. If you just look at the safe Democratic states, he's already over 270. Now, more. Here's what the map would look like. I, I like this map because it really shows you it, it's, a, it's a conservative prediction here. 2020 electoral map based on the polls. Updated three times daily, this map tracks uh, the electoral vote count for the 2020 presidential election based on polling. The 2016 election margin rounded to the nearest 1% is used where there are no polls. Use the, timeline, use the timeline feature to view the map based on the final update each day. Here's the important part. States where the margin is less than 5% are shown as a toss-up. Leaning is less than 10%. Likely is less than 15%. Safe is 15% or higher. So in other words, this is as conservative a map as you can draw. And... When you use this criteria, what you have is, you can see here, Joe Biden at 259 electoral votes, Trump at 125. So this is a little bit of a, of a, of a more conservative approach to look at it. And Biden's not already at 290 on this. He's at 259. And again, it's defined as you read here. So that says a lot. Now, what if we took the polls and just said everything as it is? Whatever the polls reflect today, that's who win the states. Here's what that map would look like. Biden, 356 electoral votes. Trump, 181. So again, that's, that's if you have no change at all. No change at all. So, you know, states that Biden's up one point in, he wins that state. States that Trump is up one point in, he wins that state. And you do it all across the country, and you have Biden at 356 electoral votes. Now, this is my favorite. This is a best-case scenario for Donald Trump. Now, what am I defining as a best-case scenario? That would be Donald Trump winning every state he's up in, every state he's tied in, and every state he's down five points or less in. Okay, so let's go back to this one to lay that out for you. This would mean Trump wins Texas, Ohio, Iowa, where he's down 0.1%, Georgia, where he's down um, 0.2%, North Carolina, North Carolina, where he's down 
what, uh, one or two points. Florida, where he's down about two points. Arizona, where he's down about two points. And even Pennsylvania, we're giving him here, he's down about five points there. So in other words, the best case scenario for Trump, defined as where he wins everywhere where he's up, tied, or down five points or less, he only gets to, in that scenario, he only ekes out an Electoral College victory at 278 electoral votes. Isn't that crazy? The absolute best case scenario for Trump is 278 electoral votes. The abs- that's if everything goes his way. Now, your mind's about to be blown. Ready for this? If you look at the best case scenario for Joe Biden, defined the exact same way. So every state Joe is up in, tied in, or within five points or down, five points down, um, Joe Biden wins 412 electoral votes. So again, this is if Joe Biden wins every state he's tied in, up in, or down five points or less, 412 electoral votes. And I'll show you that math here. So that means Biden would win Pennsylvania, Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, Georgia, Iowa, Ohio, and Texas, where he's only down two points. That's how you get to the 412 number. So I'm not going to give you a hard prediction, okay? But what I am going to do is tell you what a very likely scenario is. A very likely scenario is Joe Biden winning anywhere from 300 electoral votes to about 360 electoral votes. Anywhere in that range, Biden 300 to 360 is very, very, very likely. And again, I'll show you probably, if you're asking me the most straightforward way to determine what's going to happen. So if you were to put a gun to my head and say, you have to make a prediction, okay? Well, listen, I would do the most straightforward thing, which is just take all the polls as they exist right now, screenshot them, and say, let's say this is what it is. And in that scenario, Biden 356, Trump 181. Now, I would, I'm sympathetic to the idea that, oh, well, maybe some of these polls still undercount Trump support. So, okay, then you knock it down to what, Biden 320-ish, something like that. Um, but honestly, there's an equal case for the opposite thing, which is um, maybe this time the polls are undercounting the Biden support. And to the extent that there's any new rush to the polls, it's more of an anti-Trump rush to the polls. So the same way that there's an argument for maybe there's a hidden Trump vote, there might be a hidden Biden vote. So you don't know, which is why I say if you had a gun to my head and said you have to pick something, I would say Biden 356, Trump 181. But again, the reason I say that is because I'm just looking at the polls and saying, let's go into election day and just say exactly what the polls are is what it's going to be. Because again, they have adjusted for whatever flaws there were in 2016. So, I mean, there it is. That's your breakdown. Um, We'll see what happens. And, you know, I'll be watching it live with you guys. I will be uh, with Joe Rogan. We're doing an election day special. Tim Dillon, the comedian, will be there. That'll be fun. He's a hilarious guy. I'm really looking forward to it. And it appears like Alex Jones invited himself to our election day special. So, 
he might be there as well. What's so crazy is that, I told you guys, I have a theory that everything feels fake. It's just like everything is scripted. You can't get more dream world than me, Joe Rogan, Tim Dillon, and Alex Jones doing election day coverage. (laughs) Somehow there's going to be an event on election day that could overshadow the election. And I'm part of it. I don't get it. Okay. Okay, next. Joe Biden is out with his closing argument ads for the election. Um, There's two separate ones here. I put them together. One of them is more personal. The other one uh, is more political. Let's take a look at it, and then we'll grade how good of a job you did. My name is Jill Biden, and I want to tell you about my husband, Joe. I first met Joe two years after a car accident, injured his sons, and killed his wife and his baby daughter. His life had been shattered. But as one of Joe's favorite quotes reminds us, faith sees best in the dark. Joe's faith helped him channel his grief into purpose. It gave him the strength to fight hard for other people's families in the Senate and then take a two-hour train ride home every day to be there for his own. Right now, a lot of families are hurting, and I know in my heart that if we entrust this nation to Joe, he will do for these families what he did for ours. Bring us together. Help us find light in the darkness. Keep hope for the future alive in all of us. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. I started this campaign saying we're in a battle for the soul of the nation. I believe that even more deeply today. Who we are, what we stand for, and maybe most importantly, who we are going to be, it's all at stake characters on the ballot, the character of the country, and this is our opportunity to leave the dark, angry politics of the past four years behind us, to choose hope over fear, unity over division, science over fiction. I believe it's time to unite the country, to come together as a nation, but I can't do it without you, so I'm asking for your vote. We need to remember, this is the United States of America, and there's never been anything we've been unable to do when we've together. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. So as usual, when it comes to Joe Biden, I have two separate commentaries, because one is not enough. First, I'll give you my commentary, then I'll give you my more objective view of the situation, not through my incredibly cynical and pessimistic eyes. So, I mean, right off the bat, when he says at the end there, we're the United States of America. There's nothing we can't do. You're the guy who says all the time we can't do Medicare for all. You say it all the time. I mean, it's insulting, and it's disrespectful, and every other developed nation 
as one version or another of a universal healthcare system. Somehow they could figure it out and do it. We can't do it. Even though all the studies on it say with a single-payer system, with a Medicare for All system, you cover everybody with healthcare, and it costs $5 trillion less over a decade. And you save for at least 45,000 lives every single year. Can't do it. There's nothing we can't do as Americans, except Medicare for All, we can't do that. Except ending the wars, we can't do that either. We have to keep some troops there. Except uh, free college, I'm not so hot on that one. Green New Deal, can't do that one, sorry. Well, I have my own Biden plan, which waters it down, and then we do that. So wait, 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 which is it? Which is it? There's nothing we can't do or any bold agenda is something we can't do. It's too much. It's so frustrating. It's so frustrating. Because, guys, the point of what he's doing is to make it a platitude. That's it. Like, the whole point is let me give you airy rhetoric that you'll interpret however you want. Not like I will actually do these concrete things to fix the country. Um, so the first one was the, per- the first ad was the personal story there. You saw it. Listen, from my perspective, even though he has a very compelling personal story, listen, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. And the reason I don't want to hear it is because there is zero connection between what you went through and how you govern. There's just not. You know, it, the argument was, oh, faith sees best in the dark. Because Joe went through this terrible time, he fought for other f- families in the Senate just as hard. And that's just not true. I mean, this is the guy who did the bankruptcy bill, which made it harder for, um, you know, student loans. You can't file for bankruptcy on student loans. Other forms, uh, you know, if you're in debt in other ways, you can file for bankruptcy, not student loans. Thank this guy for that. You know, he was for the NSA spying. He was for the Iraq war. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, The crime bill. So you can't, don't give me this nonsense about he had personal tragedy, therefore... He can understand if other people have tragedies and he's sympathetic, but he's not. His voting record is not sympathetic. There's, he argued on the, on the floor of the Senate to cut Social Security and Medicare and make a deal with Republicans. That's the opposite of sympathy for other people. So listen, again, my commentary is, God, he's so full of shit. But the other commentary I have is older voters eat this shit up. They eat it up, dog. They eat it up. They love it. They love it. It's only younger voters, just like that MSNBC town hall we saw the other day where they were ripping everybody in sight. Younger voters were like, let me see your policies, and I will evaluate based on that. Older voters are like, policy? What's a policy? I've never even heard of that. Do they say flowery words and make me feel good? Is it like I'm watching a rom-com movie when they talk? Then I like them. So listen, fact of the matter is he chipped away at older voters and suburbanite voters. So he did the thing that Hillary Clinton wanted to do, which is like, what if we expanded the Democratic coalition to not be a Democratic coalition and to make it a more moderate Republican coalition? He did that. He did that successfully. So listen, my commentary is, I don't want to hear about your personal story because it doesn't translate into you being for policies that help other people. It doesn't. It just doesn't. It's a fact. But the reality is older voters see this and they think, oh, my God, what a good man. He went through tragedy. And they eat up lines like, faith sees best in the dark. That doesn't even mean anything. Um, And then the second ad, even though it's more politics-oriented, notice there was no solutions in there. What did he say? This is the battle for the soul of the nation. Character is on the ballot. 
choose hope over fear, unity over division. Unite the country. None of that stuff means anything. It doesn't mean anything. You're just using happy words. (laughs) That's it. Tell me what you're going to do. What are you going to do? And it's just like, listen, again, it's an old school kind of politics that he's still doing because in his mind it's still 1986. So this is what you do in 1986. You know, you go out there and you make people feel good by sounding more like a freaking, you know, motivational speaker than a serious person discussing the direction to take the country. And listen, the polls show very clearly right now that this stuff is working. So my commentary is, I hate it with every fiber of my being, and don't be surprised when he does dick to improve people's lives. Um, but my more objective commentary is, we got to explain the polls somehow. And the reality is, he's been doing this since day one. And my best theory to explain it all is this. People really have been so burned by the Trump era. Everybody's so tired. Everybody's so beaten down. There's so much mayhem. There's so much chaos. If you spoke about this in, say, 2018 or even early 2019, people would be like, we deviated from the status quo and from politics as usual and from that which is normal because we hated the idea that what was normal was acceptable. That's why people rolled the dice on Trump. But Trump comes in and he's so bad that now everybody's like, oh, Jesus Christ, I'll take normal. Go back to normal. Now, my guess is once we get back to normal, people will be like, hey, this sucks too. It just sucks in a different way. We shouldn't do this. But as of right now, that is the pervasive sentiment in the country. The sentiment is, Jesus Christ, just let me wake up and not feel like I got to check Twitter to make sure the world didn't end last night. You see what I'm saying? So that's the reality. Going back to normal was not an appealing thought previously. Now it's an appealing thought to a lot of people. And that explains the coalition. Again, older voters and suburbanites. That's who's giving him his giant lead. A lot of people in the suburbs were like, Trump is too unhinged. That's who's giving him his lead. So, listen, they vote in higher numbers. They're more politically involved. Young people, working people, poor people, in theory, should have came out, did that big wave and got Bernie elected. But now we're stuck with the candidate who was picked solely because people assumed he's the safer choice against Trump. I'll tell you right now, if it was Bernie, I think Bernie would be up way more than Joe Biden is up. Joe Biden is up a lot. I think Bernie would be up way more. I do. So people went with what they thought was the safe option against Trump. And it just might be enough. Trump has been so bad, and we have a pandemic and an economy that's terrible. Like, he's so bad that they might just get away with not being Trump. And the terrible aspect of that is, moving forward, they're going to learn all the wrong lessons. All the lessons they're going to learn. Okay, neoliberal corporatism is awesome. The status quo is awesome. The establishment is awesome. And uh, this is how you win, stupid lefties. Well, listen, if Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar didn't drop out at the last minute and endorse Joe Biden when Obama made a phone call, and Elizabeth Warren didn't stay in to siphon votes from Bernie, Bernie won the first three primaries. He was going to curb stop his way to winning in the primary. So don't give me this nonsense about like, oh, the only way to win is with centrism. No, you're just lucky that Donald Trump is Donald Trump and you're not Donald Trump. Because when I see these ads, what I see is something that my generation rolls their eyes at. Now, again, a lot of them might suck it up and make that lesser evil vote. But you talk to them and they'll tell you, oh, this is a lesser evil vote. 
don't get it twisted like I like Joe Biden or something, or like I think he's going to actually do a good job. I just think he's going to do a less bad job than the asshole in there now. So there you have it. My personal commentary is I hate these ads. It's everything I hate about politics. It's BS, flowery language, nonsense. Um, but my more objective commentary is, hey, listen, it worked to this point. And because Trump is so bad, it might be enough to get him over the finish line. And it is what it is. Okay. Now, Biden's still up big in the polls. The reason he's up big is not even necessarily because he's doing so well. It's that, look at who his opponent is. Too much mayhem, too much chaos. They change their strategy every two and a half days, the Trump campaign does this time around. Um, But a lot of people forget how he got to the place he is right now. It wasn't a fluke that he became president. In 2016, he actually ran a good campaign. So, you guys all know the different strategies he's taken in 2020. You know, call Joe Biden a radical Marxist Antifa lover or something. And then he does that half the time. The other half the time, it's slow Joe, sleepy Joe. He changes it all the time. There is nothing that's sticking to Biden because they can't stick to a narrative. So it's, it's kind of crazy to watch. And also they're incoherent. Like when they attack Joe Biden for doing the crime bill, which is too tough on crime because you're locking up nonviolent offenders. And then in the next breath, he says, you're not strong enough on law and order. So he's too hard on crime and too soft on crime, according to Trump. This is why this stuff doesn't stick, because you're saying everything at once. (laughs) So um, the campaign this year is terrible. What I want to do is show you why he won last time. Trump released an ad in 2016, his closing argument ad. And I really do think this highlights how his campaign was so much better than it got credit for and why he was able to effectively pick off the election by taking the Rust Belt. So without further ado, Here's his 2016 closing argument ad. And just think about how his campaign is today as you watch this. Our movement is about replacing a failed and corrupt political establishment with a new government controlled by you, the American people. The establishment has trillions of dollars at stake in this election. Oops. Those who control the levers of power in Washington and for the global special interest, they partner with these people that don't have your good in mind. The political establishment that is trying to stop us is the same group responsible for our disastrous trade deals, massive illegal immigration, and economic and foreign policies that have bled our country dry. The political establishment has brought about the destruction of our factories and our jobs as they flee to Mexico, China, and other countries all around the world. It's a global power structure that is responsible for the economic decisions that have robbed our working class, stripped our country of its wealth, and put that money into the pockets of a handful of large corporations and political entities. The only thing that can stop this corrupt machine is you. 
The only force strong enough to save our country is us. The only people brave enough to vote out this corrupt establishment is you, the American people. I'm doing this for the people and for the movement, and we will take back this country for you, and we will make America great again. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. That's why he won. That's why he won. He says, I'm repping the people, not the special interests. He brings up the trade deals, factories shutting down, jobs being shipped overseas. He, he says the words working class, which I don't think a Republican has ever said ever or ever said since. And then he brings up income and wealth inequality. He does a typical Trump thing. He brings up illegal immigration, of course. But most of that ad, he's, the whole point is, There's a failed and corrupt political establishment. I'm not with them. I'm with you. And we're going to beat them. We're going to take them down. This is why he won. This is populism. Now, ultimately, he ended up being a fake populist because he governed as a standard establishment Republican. Deregulation, tax cuts for the rich, you name it. But this is why he won. This is why he won. You can see how he won when you watch this. Now, again, compare it. Compare it to what he's doing now. He doesn't know whether he's coming or going. There's none of this anymore. There's none of these kinds of arguments. He used to bring up all the time, I'm not going to cut Social Security. I'm not going to cut Medicare. Other Republicans in the primary, he was like, other Republicans, you guys all want to cut it. I don't want to cut it. I'm not going to cut it. I'm not going to outsource your jobs. These guys are going to outsource your jobs. What are you, crazy? This is a no-brainer. Obviously, you support me. This is why he won. Now, you might say, well, Kyle, you're just biased in saying that hey, his campaign was good back then, but you're not giving credit for him doing a good job today because the people don't agree with you, Kyle. The people think he's still the same guy. Really? Take a look at this poll. This is from CBS News, and this was in Wisconsin, but this says quite a bit. Who are they most concerned about? 35% say he's concerned about the wealthy and elite. 47% say he's concerned about the middle class. 18% say he's concerned about the poor. Trump, who is he concerned about? 60% say he's concerned about the wealthy and elite, only 35% say the middle class, and 5% say the poor. In other words, they now see through him. They now see him like a typical politician. They don't think he's fighting for working class people because he's not fighting for working class people. Now you've had power. Now you've been in office. And what did you do with it? You deregulated, you destroyed the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and you cut taxes for the rich. 83% of the benefits of his tax bill go to the top 1%. That tax bill raises taxes on everybody making $75,000 a year or less over a decade. Any tax cuts for the wealthy and corporations, permanent. Any tax cuts for you, temporary. They saw you govern, and you didn't govern like the guy in that ad. You governed like an elitist. So now people see through you. The fake populist tap dance worked in 2016. Now he's listening to guys like Larry Kudlow, the least populist person on the planet, the most elitist person on the planet. What do you expect? What do you think is going to happen? So Biden, Joe Biden, Joe Biden is crushing Trump on the issue of who are you representing? 60% Trump is representing the elite. Only 35% say Biden is representing the elite, the wealthy and the elite. And that's why it's very likely 
that this election will be very, very different. Okay, now let's talk about mail-in ballots. With this election being heavily mail-in, it's going to get really, really messy. Now, it's not necessarily going to get messy for the reasons that you think it's going to get messy. Actually, in some ways, it's the opposite. So the idea in a lot of people's minds is, oh, my God, when you do mail-in ballots, now it's susceptible to widespread fraud. Um, Simply put, there's no evidence of that. We have states that already do mail-in and have been doing mail-in for a while. There's just no evidence that it leads to widespread voter fraud. But there's another kind of problem, and this report from Vice News really lays it out well. The main topic of the debate is how voting by mail works. That includes voters challenging states that require a valid reason to be able to mail their ballots, as well as states that say that concern about COVID-19 isn't one of those valid reasons. Individual voters in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Tennessee have sued their local Republican officials, challenging some of the most restrictive absentee voting policies in the country. In Louisiana, recent polling shows that nearly 50% of voters said they were likely to vote absentee. Until recently, most of them wouldn't have qualified unless they had a medical condition certified by a physician or actually tested positive for COVID-19. Luckily for Louisianans, this rule was struck down in mid-September. In Iowa, courts recently agreed with Trump's re-election campaign that ballot request forms sent to voters shouldn't have been pre-filled with their information because it gave no assurance that return forms were actually sent by the voter. Three county officials were forced to invalidate 57,000 forms filled out by voters who now have to either fill out a new request by October 24th or turn up on election day. A similar decision blocked election officials in Harris County, Texas, from sending absentee ballot applications to all 2.4 million registered voters. After Republican officials sued the county and a judge ruled in favor of proactive applications, the decision was revoked by the state's all Republican Supreme Court. So how much does voting by mail really matter? In the 2016 election, nearly 24% of votes were cast using absentee voting by mail. More than 300,000 of those votes were rejected for two main reasons. Some kind of signature defect or the ballots weren't received in time. And that was when there wasn't a pandemic. This year, more than 64% of voters have said they plan to vote by mail. If a similar proportion of the mailing votes were once again rejected, the repercussions will scale up, potentially to millions of votes. And that could be the deciding factor in states like Michigan, Minnesota, or Pennsylvania, where victory in 2016 was by a narrow margin. We don't even have to wait until November to see this in action. In the presidential primaries, at least 550,000 absentee ballots were rejected. In courts across the country, one of the big issues is voting deadlines, and there are plenty of deadlines. There's the deadline to register for your absentee ballots, the deadline to send your balloting, and the deadline for it to be received. At least 32 lawsuits have been brought over deadlines for absentee ballots to arrive and be counted. During Wisconsin's April primary, a federal court allowed all ballots received up to a week after election night to be counted, regardless of the date they were mailed. Republicans appealed, and a Supreme Court majority struck down most of the measure the night before election day. It still allowed absentee ballots postmarked by election night and received up to a week after to be counted, but made any ballots postmarked after election night invalid. In July, plaintiffs, including the DNC, asked the court to again extend deadlines for November's election, claiming that the extension of time granted in April allowed more than 79,000 ballots to be counted. And then there's signatures. In Arizona, Democrats challenged the state's practice of rejecting absentee votes without a signature on the envelope. Republicans, including the president's re-election campaign, argue that allowing voters to correct the error by adding their signature in the electoral process. On September 10th, the court ordered that voters should have the chance to correct their missing signature. The order will save thousands of ballots that are usually rejected. From 2008 to 2018, in Maricopa County alone, election officials rejected a total of 18,420 mail ballots because they were missing signatures. 
If you're an American voter, the rules today for how you're meant to vote by mail could very well have changed by the time you're watching this, which isn't an ideal scenario with an election only weeks away. The closer it gets to November 3rd, the greater the chance that last-minute judgments on voting rules will create confusion among election officials and voters alike. And once it's election night, get ready for a whole wave of new lawsuits challenging why certain votes weren't counted. So here's why this is a disaster. The way that it generally works is the higher the turnout, the more likely it is the Democrat wins. The lower the turnout, the more likely it is that the Republican wins. Because the people who vote pretty much all the time guaranteed, they're older people, they're right-leaning, they view voting as a civic duty, they settle for a lot less uh, in their candidates. If there's a high turnout, I mean, young voters came out, and young voters are, are, you know, typically they only vote when they really feel like they have something to vote for. Um, So as a result of that, what happens is, in all these respective states, the Republicans are going to try to find loopholes to dismiss ballots. So they come up with these really strict rules for mailing in your votes. And, you know, they'll say, hey, you signed your name, you didn't have your middle initial, there was a middle initial on you, on your your government record, so we're going to throw it out because you didn't put your middle initial, so your vote doesn't count. And... You know, you got to dot every I and cross every T and make sure everything is filled out perfectly um, because they will look for any and all ways to dismiss ballots because they want the turnout to be lower because they know when the turnout is lower, it helps the Republicans. So you'll have Republicans do that. And then in court, Democrats will basically do the opposite and they'll argue that you can't, you shouldn't throw out any ballots, even if there are, you know, even if there are clear mistakes in how somebody filled out, you know, their ballot and then mailed it in. And so you're going to have all these court cases. I mean, there's court cases happening right now over this. But you're going to have all these court cases moving forward because one of the things that happens is a lot of the states, you can mail in your vote on election day. And so we're not going to know for like until a week after really what the final count is. And sometimes it's even longer than that. So... This is why it's going to be a mess because, and there's this scenario data analysts have talked about, which is this idea of a red mirage, which means Republicans are overwhelmingly likely to vote on election day. In fact, the votes cast on election day are guaranteed to go overwhelmingly for Trump. Um, But at the same token, or at the same token, by the same token, um, the mail-in ballots beforehand are overwhelmingly pro-Biden. So... It could look like on election night, if you're counting the votes that were cast on election night, that Trump did way better than he actually did in reality. And then when you get the real results, when all the ballots are counted in the next week, it's like it looked like Trump was doing well and could win, and then Biden actually wins comfortably. So that's like the worst case scenario is the red mirage scenario. And then beyond that, we have Brett Kavanaugh, just released something that should scare the pants off of anybody. Perhaps not the best thing to say in context of Brett Kavanaugh, given his history. Keep your pants on. I don't want him to scare the pants off of you. I don't want that. <laughs> um, but he said he was basically hinting at the fact that the Supreme Court could invalidate a hell of a lot of mail-in ballots because, oh, it's better for the country to know on election night the results of the election. And so, you know, they'll come up with this nonsense rationale to dismiss votes 
and ballots that are perfectly legal that'll take a little bit longer to count. And he's already hinting that, like, yes, I will decide to shut down the vote count if need be. So, in other words, guys, you're gonna, you already have court battles over mail-in ballots, where Republicans are trying to reject a bunch of them, Democrats are trying to save them. Um, you're going to have more of that on Election Day. And then you could have it, so you could have it at the state level, and then you also could have it at the federal level. If, if the race is close enough, something could get to the Supreme Court, and we could see a Bush v. Gore-like situation where they basically handed the election to George W. Bush, which is a terrifying thought. So honestly, you really need to hope for a landslide in order to escape this total chaos and mayhem, because it's, the chaos and mayhem is already happening, and it can get worse. But listen, it all stems from the fact that there's contesting on things that shouldn't be contested. And again, we saw this in 2000, Bush versus Gore. There were debates about what ballots do you count and what ones do you not count. There was this whole thing about hanging chads. I know that sounds dirty, but it's not. Um, the way you vote, there were these things called chads. It's like you punch through it, and it, it, you know, the, the thing falls off, and then that shows who you voted for. There were ballots that had dimpled chads, for example, which means clearly it, they tried to push through but didn't. And then there were hanging chads, which they pushed through a little further, but the chad didn't fall off completely. So there were debates. How do we count the ballots? Do if there's a hanging chat, does that count as a vote for that person? Or if it's a dimple chat, does it count as a vote for that person? And there are different ways to count it, and there were arguments over it. So, you know, we could be facing a similar situation where now the Republicans are trying to dismiss hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of votes around, around the country, cumulatively. And the Democrats are trying to save all those ballots. And, you know, the political makeup of the courts is going to be pretty consequential when you think about it. So buckle up. I really hope everything goes smoothly, but there's just so much evidence that it probably won't. Okay. All right, let's make fun of Ted Cruz. I got a couple um, Ted Cruz things to go to. Ted Cruz is beginning to throw Trump under the bus. We've seen this a lot recently with a lot of Republicans. They see the polls. They think it's inevitable that he loses. And I'm serious about that. Like Mitch McConnell's 100% convinced Trump is donezo. So here's Ted Cruz doing an interview with, uh, I think his name is Jonathan Swan of Axios. This is interesting. One issue I haven't heard discussed at all this election, let alone this debate, is the debt and deficit. Yep. Nick Mulvaney had a great quote. He said, you know, when, when there's a Democrat in the White House, my party, boy, do we care about the deficits, the worst thing in the world when Barack Obama's president. But Donald Trump came in and, you know, we're not so worried about that anymore. He's, he's right, isn't he? So, look, I'm very worried about the debt. And yeah. I'm worried about it under Trump. Uh, now, to be fair... Trump didn't campaign on cutting the debt. He did. He said he's going to eliminate the national debt in eight years. 
And he also said something, what is it, on the king of debt uh, in 2016. Right. Trump has said from day one, look, he gets to decide his priorities, and they're not necessarily all my priorities. But, but here's so, the thing. so the fact that I, I don't doubt your sincerity on this. You have been consistent. I'm not, this is not directed at you. But stepping back, you, you belong to a party that has greenlit a historic expansion of deficits and debt. And it's just a plain fact. Do I wish that it was a higher priority for the president to rein in spending and the debt? Yes. He didn't run uh, principally on reining in spending and deficit and debt. That's not what he promised to do. We had real differences between it. And you know what the voters will remind you he did promise to eliminate the national debt. But, but let me let me give let, let me give another element of it, yeah. and this is where. In terms of how you eliminate the deficit and move towards reducing the debt, I'm um, going to say growth. The most important right. factor. Trump's policies have been profoundly pro-growth. Yeah. The tax cuts are profoundly pro-deficit. Do you think your colleagues, the Republican Party, will rediscover its concern about debt sure. deficit? Sure. I mean, isn't that the most cynical, phony oh, look, thing? There's an isn't element that, of it. Of puke? You're touching into something that, as you know, I have raged against. And I have raged against my own party not genuinely fighting to rein in spending and deficits and debt. I mean, it's crazy watching him squirm trying to weasel his way out of this obvious point. So Jonathan Swan's point is, whenever there's a Democratic president, you guys scream and bitch and moan, oh my God, the debt, the deficit, oh my God, it's so high, we must do something bankrupting our future generations. Oh my God. And then whenever Republicans are in control, they're like, debt? You said something about that? I don't know nothing about that. We're betting me. I don't know what you're saying. What are you saying that right there? They're like, oh, we, we're just going to spend like a drunken sailor. Now, by the way, my position on it is right now, you do not worry about the debt. The economy is imploding. We control our own currency. Every economist would tell you, except, you know, hardcore um, anarcho-capitalists, like extreme libertarians, um, Every non-Austrian economist will tell you, you have to spend when you're in a recession or a depression. You have to do it, or else you're going to have immense pain across the country. And we control our own currency. Of course, we can do it. So that's my position on it. But what, what are they spending on? Listen, the stuff they're wasting money on, a giant, colossal increase in military spending, which we don't need, which we don't need. That's what they're spending on. And also, stuff like the CARES Act, where most of that bill, it's a $5 trillion giveaway to corporate America as a result of the pandemic. This is Naomi Klein's shock doctrine 101. Like, just give all the money to Wall Street, financial institutions, the airlines, big corporations. The economy implodes. You bail them out. Then they turn around and fire their workers anyway, when the whole idea was supposed to be, hey, we'll bail you up. You've got to keep your workers on. Well, they didn't make it the hardcore terms of the deal, and so they bail these people out. They bail these companies out, and then they fire the workers anyway. So this is what they're spending the money on, corporate welfare and war. That's what they're spending the money on. And, by the way, Ted Cruz, oh, what else do they spend the money on? A colossal tax cut for the rich. 
So Ted Cruz, Jonathan Swan is wrong about one thing. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you've been consistent on this. I'm not talking about you. No, he hasn't. He supported the Trump's, Trump tax cut bill. 83% of that bill, 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%. And it added over a trillion dollars to the deficit. They cut taxes for the rich. So they gave all this money to the rich and corporations because they cut the corporate tax rate too. And they added over a trillion dollars to the deficit. He supported that. Rand Paul did too. These guys pretend like, oh yeah, I care so much about the debt and the deficit. And then they add over a trillion to the deficit to give more money to corporations and to billionaires and to the wealthy. So he's full of shit just like the rest of them. But yes, this is exactly what happens. Republicans are in control. They do whatever the hell they want. It adds to the debt and the deficit. And then as soon as the Democrat gets in control, like, oh, my God, the debt and the deficit. Who's been spending this money? This is crazy. What are you guys thinking? What are you guys doing? This is wild. But notice, also, he ain't defending Trump. He's slowly but surely tiptoeing out of the room. He sees the polls. He knows what it looks like for Election Day. So he's like, yeah, see, the thing about Trump is he to put the debt. And, uh, I mean, listen, I disagree with him. I disagree with him. He's a big spender. I say we should care about the debt and the deficit. I mean, what do you want me to tell you, man? We had different priorities. The voters picked who they picked. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? See, you're going to see a lot of these, and I've already been seeing them, a lot of these little hints dropped here and there by other Republicans. That's like, we're not idiots. We see the polls. We know what's about to happen. So they're already trying to give themselves that wiggle room and that plausible deniability for a post-Trump era, where they'll be like, who, me, bro? I always, I always disagree with them all the time. I don't know what you're talking about. I would say things, I would, I would call them in the middle of the night just to be like, I disagree with you, Donald. That's what I do. I don't think you're doing the right thing here, sir. Snakes, weasels, that's what they are. So weasley. So anyway, um, you're beginning to see that happen. Oh, and also, I love when they say pro-growth policies. Like, yeah, you know, they've had, we've had many pro-growth policies in the past four years. Oh, really? Have you seen what's happening with the economy? Now, admittedly, they'll say, yeah, COVID was the thing. Correct, but you don't get a mulligan. You don't get a mulligan. I love it when they do that. Would they give a Democrat a mulligan? <laughs> so a Democrat, you know, we get hit by the pandemic. People are dying. The economy tanks. People are losing their jobs. Would they say, it, it doesn't count because a bad thing led to it? No, they'd be like, deal with the current reality. What are you talking about? But for them, they just act like they skip a few chapters, as um, one of my friends said on Twitter. It's like they just skip the parts that make them look bad. Like, we were doing well about a year ago. What about now? <laughs> like, you're, you're admitting not now. Okay, so there you have it. Anyway, um, it's funny watching him squirm. It's funny watching him slowly back away from Trump. And um, he's so full of it, man. He really is. He's so full of it. They only use the debt and the deficit concern to hit Democrats over the head. By the way, the real point is we want to make sure they don't spend more money for the people. So I don't want to spend money on health care. I don't want to spend money on education. I don't want to spend money on an infrastructure deal. So let's block the Democrats from spending on those things. And then what happens? If you don't spend on education, if you don't spend on health care, if you don't spend on an infrastructure deal or jobs for the people, well, then people don't like you because austerity hurts the population. So you see the trick when they're in power, spend, 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 and don't say anything about the debt and the deficit, knowing that the more they spend, the more likely it is they'll 
do better in the next election. When Democrats get in power, oh my God, debt and deficit. They don't want them to spend a penny on the people because they know, listen, this is what happened with FDR. FDR was our social democratic president. He was so popular, he got elected four times. The Republicans had to come up with term limits to stop the Democrats from permanently winning elections because that's what happens when you spend on the people. They go, I kind of like this. This is nice. It's nice to have a job. It's nice to be secure. So this is their trick now. Their trick is if a Democrat gets our debt deficit, oh my God, we just added trillions ourselves, but don't look at that. But care when it's them in power. So Weasley, such a prick. And of course, I couldn't get through the entire segment without doing my Ken Cruz impression. Why did I do the Pat Robertson shoulders for that? That's the Pat Robertson shoulders move. But my Ted Cruz impression, I'm Ted Cruz. I'm a cuck to Donald Trump, but if he loses, and I really disagreed with Mr. Trump, I warned him, I told him, don't do the things that you're doing, sir. I want to be president one day, but I'll probably be defeated by one of Trump's idiot sons. I'm Ted Cruz. Me. Okay. Well, that was fun. All right, let me take a quick break. When we come back, I got more for you. Ted Cruz spoke to Axios um, some more, and he's going to tell you the biggest lie. He's going to give you the biggest crock of shit that Republicans say about the Supreme Court. And then we shall talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Stay right there, y'all.
are back, bitch. We are back. I am here. I am here, I am here. Alright, where were we? We were halfway through making fun of Ted Cruz. I think my next Ted Cruz segment needs more Ted Cruz impressions. What do you think? I think you agree. That's what I think. Alright, here we go. Ted Cruz spoke to Axios. Uh, This was a really interesting interview for a number of reasons. What he's going to do here is lay out for you what I think is the single biggest line of bullshit that comes from the right on the issue of the Supreme Court. Um, Let's watch, and then I'm going to dissect it. One thing you said, um, you know, you wish they talked more about the Supreme Court. You said the last time in 16 when this happened with Merrick Garland, that not only did you want to hold it at an eight-person court through the election, uh, but even beyond, if Hillary got elected, you were willing for it to be a 448 court. Now you say it's essential that our Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed before the election because we need a nine-person court. It could be a constitutional crisis if we don't have it. We need it to adjudicate the election. I mean, isn't that a little cynical? I think the chances of a contested election and litigation this cycle are enormously high. And we need a method of resolving certainty. I also think, going back to the checks and balances, that the Senate has a role uh, in resisting justices who will, who will damage and undermine the Constitution. And so when I was resisting that, if Hillary Clinton was going to nominate judicial activists, I was going to oppose them. And the reason I was going to oppose them is because I told the people of Texas, I'm going to oppose judges that undermine the Constitution. So it's entirely consistent to say, if you've got a president who's appointing the one, I'm going to fight to confirm him. If you've got a president who's, going to, who's, who's affirming, appointing the other, I'm going to fight not to confirm him. You, you just know. didn't seem concerned about that in 16. There is a real difference between what Democrats and Republicans are looking for in Supreme Court justices. Democrats are outcome-oriented at the court. They want their guys to vote their way. They assume what Trump wants and a Republican Senate wants is a justice that's going to vote for Donald Trump. I think Trump might want that, just a guess. What I want the the justices to do, if we have that, is resolve the cases according to the law and the Constitution. I'm looking for a justice who will follow the law. No, you're not. No, you're not. See, this is the thing. Their line on the courts is... Who, me, bro? I don't even care about, like, my political opinion or whatever. Like, my opinion's sort of, like, irrelevant and stuff. All I care about is that these people follow the Constitution and follow the law and do the right thing. But it just so happens that in every instance, that aligns with your political opinion. So in other words, they won't, just, they won't just be honest about the fact that, of course, they care about the outcomes. Of course, they care about conservative opinions and that that really is the guiding principle. And they work backwards from that. And they come up with legal rationales to say, this is why we should rule this way. They don't admit that. They play hide the ball. And so they act like, it's not even about my opinion, bro. It's not even about my opinion. It's about the law and stuff. 
And it's just incredibly dishonest. So here, let me give you a great example of this because there is no such thing as an originalist or a textualist. It just doesn't actually exist. And the reason is there's so much room for interpretation when you read the Constitution. They didn't touch on everything. And so the founders didn't touch on everything and give a clear answer on everything. Of course, we're going to interpret it and fill in the gaps in you know, the modern era. That's what happens with everybody. So Ted Cruz, Mr. I just go by the Constitution, bro. I'm a textualist. I'm an originalist. Ted Cruz has argued that there should be, and I'm not kidding, go look this up, you'll be amazed. Cruz said there should be unlimited billionaire money, corporate money, big donor money in elections and in politics. He wants unlimited corruption in our political system. Why? Because he says, First Amendment, bro, freedom of speech. I'm not kidding. That's the argument. The argument is we have the First Amendment, so therefore, obviously, billionaires and corporations should be able to buy politicians. Because when they give money to politicians, that's not corruption. That's not a bribe. That's them saying, like, hey, man, this is like speech, and this is me saying that I sort of, like, agree with you on stuff. So this is a guy who says, I just go by the plain face reading of the Constitution. It says nothing in the First Amendment about giving money to politicians. Nothing about it. Nothing. But he interprets it that way. Why? Because that's his political belief. His political belief is pro-corruption, pro-money in politics. So you see what I'm saying here? This idea, this notion that there's only judicial activists on the left, that's utter nonsense. In fact, the key conservative Supreme Court era is defined by judicial activism. It's just right-wing judicial activism. That's the Lochner era, what we've been talking about a lot recently with Amy Coney Barrett now getting on the court. So, listen, the honest reality about the Supreme Court is, of course it's political. It's inherently political. Everything's political. Yes, judges on the right and judges on the left are going to say, oh, I'm just solely going based off of what the law says, what the rules are, what the Constitution is, and I'm telling you my interpretation of that. They're all going to say that. But in reality, yes, they are very informed by their political leaning and by their own ideology. And they don't just go, uh, yes, whatever I think the founding fathers said when they were wearing powdered wigs and shitting in outhouses, that's what I'm going to go with now. It's ridiculous. Again, there is no such thing as an originalist or a, constitu- or, or a textualist. Everybody has to interpret the Constitution in their own way. And since they didn't touch on everything, you have to fill in the gaps when you're dealing with modern cases. So everybody believes to one extent or another in a living document theory. Yes, everybody also has some element of originalism and textualism in that they will reference the actual words in the Constitution, but there is no clear, black and white, straightforward interpretation that everybody agrees to all the time. That's ridiculous. So I just, I find it so smug and arrogant that, like, they think, we're just pro-law. That's what we are. And the Democrats are, like, anti-law. No. They read the same document as you, and they have different interpretations as to what's acceptable and what's not acceptable today, based on that. It's not like you're pro-law, you're pro-Constitution, they're anti-Constitution. I could easily make the argument, you're anti-Constitution because you made up that there's a right to corruption in the First Amendment. God, he's so smug. 
I'm Ted Cruz. I think corruption is freedom of speech. And also, I believe in the law and the Constitution and stuff. <laughs> Go away, Ted. Go away. So, with Amy Coney Barrett getting on the court, or as I call her, Waffle Coney, um, we're not in a good place. I will not sugarcoat it for you. Others may sugarcoat it for you. I will not do that. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted the following when she got on the court. She says, expand the court. Republicans do this because they don't believe Dems have the stones to play hardball like they do. And for a long time, they've been correct. But do not let them bully the public into thinking their bulldozing is normal, but a response isn't. There is a legal process for expansion. The Hill says Democratic Representative Ilhan Omar, a fellow squad member, retweeted Ocasio-Cortez's message Monday evening. Remember that Republicans have lost six of the last seven popular votes, but have appointed six of the last nine justices, she wrote. By expanding the court, we will fix this broken system and have the court better represent the values of the American people. Joe Biden already signals he's not going to do this. He said, I'm against term limits. That's one of the things he said. That's one of the things that would theoretically help us in this situation. He says, I'm against term limits. And then what did he say? I'm going to form a committee to look into expanding the court. You know what that means? That means I'm not going to expand the court. Because it's a bipartisan committee also. So you're going to have, I guess, some Democrats say, yeah, it might be a good idea. And then Republicans are going to say, We don't think it's a good idea. And he's going to look at the results and say, oh, okay. So uh, we've done our committee. Thank you very much. So he's not going to do it. They're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. And then also, I love this idea that, like, right after they take another gigantic loss, it's like they go on Twitter and act like they're going to be tough. Oh, expand the court. You could have blocked Amy Coney Barrett. There's a lot of misinformation out there now where, where people are saying, oh, there was nothing they could do. Nonsense. They could have procedurally jammed Congress and the Senate. There were very clear, there were memos going around Washington, D.C., laying out in detail, hey, here's what you do. If you do a war powers resolution, for example, if you impeach Bill Barr, Bill Barr for example, if you uh, get into a fight over the debt ceiling and uh, Pelosi leverages a government shutdown, there were a million things they could have done. They could have jammed up the process and made it so that, you're telling me Merrick Garland, Merrick Garland was blocked by Republicans for a year, a year, and the Democrats couldn't block Amy Coney Barrett for like a month? They didn't want to, which leads to the most important point, which I already laid out for you guys. It was, this was their strategy. Their strategy was, everybody, shh. Let's get Amy Coney Barrett on the court and get her on fast, and then we fundraise off of it and drive people to the polls for Biden off of it. That's why the second it happened, they were all out there on Twitter, vote, 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 vote. Now, here's the problem, guys. I already explained this in in my other video on this, but it's a 6-3 conservative court. You know what that means? Let's give them everything they say, the Democrats. Oh, the Democrats just want a supermajority. They have the Senate. They have the House. They have the presidency. They pass a $15 minimum wage. They pass you know, an expansion of Medicaid. 
Those things will then get challenged in court. It will get to the Supreme Court. It's a 6-3 conservative court, and they will slap down any positive change and say, sorry, it's unconstitutional. What are you going to do? So this whole, this like, vote, 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 vote. Vote, you just made it so that when we do vote, the results are not going to matter as much. How do you not get that? But they do get it, and they don't care. Because all they want is the power. That's what they want. They want to be in control. Now, Ocasio-Cortez, I don't know if she doesn't know this or if she does know this and this is cynical, but I'm kind of floored by this, like, you know, after Democrats lay down, Pelosi did nothing, Schumer did nothing, it was all symbolic, they could have done stuff, they didn't do stuff, everybody lays down in a chalk outline of themselves, and then after, expand the court, and, you know, oh, the Republicans do this because they play hardball, and we don't, but we could, you ain't doing Dickie McGee's acts. Nobody's doing dick, okay? Let's be honest about this. And it drives me crazy because it's always like, we got, well, it's the thing we're going to do. It's never like, let's just do it right now. It's never like, we're going to play hardball, we're going to do it now, we're going to make sure that we get the better outcome. They never do that. It's always like, but I will at some point, maybe in the future, I'll get around to doing some, something that's a half measure or whatever. So listen, man, this is, it's infuriating. By the way, she's right when she says, oh, six of the last seven popular votes were won by Democrats, but Republicans have appointed six of the last nine justices. But the fact of the matter is, Biden's already saying he's not going to expand the court. Pelosi and Schumer did nothing. So my question for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is, assuming you guys keep losing, because you will, at what point do you turn your guns on Pelosi and Schumer and Biden? That's my question. Because to this point, oh, you're not allowed to do it. We got an election coming up and Trump is the worst ever. So therefore, we need party unity or whatever. So when the Democrats lay in a chalk outline of themselves, I have to not attack them because that would be impolite and that would be me ruining unity or whatever. What's the point of unity if you're always going to lose to the Republicans and we're always going to creep rightward as a country? What's the point? Clearly what you're doing isn't working. So at what point does the ire get turned on Pelosi and Schumer and Biden? Because I got news for you. It already should have been on them. And anybody who's hiding that fact, doesn't know the mechanics of what's going on, or they're simply a tribal partisan hack and they don't care. All right, next. Oh boy, the Lincoln Project, here we go. Here we go. The Lincoln Project is uh, looking to become a media operation. Now, for those of you who don't know about the Lincoln Project, man, are you lucky. Um, They are a group of so-called never-Trump Republicans. They are a who's who of war criminals, neoconservatives, Reaganomics believers, They're basically wrong on everything in terms of policy, but they've leached onto the Democratic Party like a parasite. The Democrats have welcomed them in with open arms, the corporate Democrats have, and now they're incredibly influential. They're incredibly influential, and their anti-Trump ads are big hits because a lot of them take stupid, hacky resistance angles like, you know, oh, Manchurian candidate to Russia and nonsense like that. So let's see what Axios says about this. The Lincoln Project is looking to beef up its media business after the elections. After the elections, sources tell Axios. 
The group is in talks with the United Talent Agency, UTA, to help build out Lincoln Media and is weighing offers from different television studios, podcast networks, and book publishers. Lincoln's plan is part of the new trend of activists developing massive audiences for political influence that they are then able to spin into commercial media success. After the 2016 campaign, former Obama staffers launched Crooked Media, which now boasts a sprawling network of podcasts, streaming videos, live tours, and events. The Lincoln Group, which is run by prominent never-Trumper Republicans like Ron Steslow, Rick Wilson, George Conway, Jennifer Horn, Reed Galen, Mike Madrid, and Steve Schmidt, has transformed from an election-focused advertising pack into a media company with millions of followers. So, there's no way that this ends well. Because, and these guys are raising a tremendous amount of money, by the way. It is unbelievable how much money they're raising. Um, and what's happening is they could take that money that they're raising from wine moms in the suburbs who hate Trump, and they can fund down-ballot Republicans. They could take this money and fund Republican causes. They only don't like Trump but they love the policies of Trumpism. Endless war, tax cuts for the rich, so on and so forth. So because people hate Trump so much, they're funding the same people who will continue to perpetuate his policies. And so either they will literally just help Republicans in the post-Trump era, or they will work nonstop to make the Democrats even more like Republicans. They will continue to latch onto the Democratic Party and try to change them, not even really change them, make them more of what they are, more pro-war, more in favor of tax cuts, more in favor of deregulation. And so the monster's inside the house. You let them in because you saw some good anti-Trump ads. And I, I, to be fair, I think some of their ads were decent. A lot of them are garbage, but some of them were decent. But because people are so obsessed with just hating Trump, that it doesn't even matter the specifics of the arguments being made or who's making them, well, now here we are. They become incredibly prom uh, prominent. They're incredibly profitable. They have a lot of money. And so now they're doing the next thing, which is, you know, either going to help Republicans who are not named Donald Trump or make the Democratic Party a lot more like the Republican Party, because that's what it is. I mean, the Democrats already are, it's the moderate Republican Party. They want to make sure, like, their whole goal will be not the left. They hate Trump. They don't want Trump, but definitely not the left. Stop the Democratic Party from going left. Stop them from endorsing stuff like Medicare for All, free college, a living wage, ending the wars, a Green New Deal. And these are the people that have influence and sway in Washington, D.C., among power centers. So here we are. Hell world continues. It's really sad to know that if, if Donald Trump wins, I mean, it's obviously going to be a mess if he wins because he'll just keep doing everything he's doing. Govern like a, an establishment Republican and then add in the no filter and the mean tweets and him being a savage and a barbarian. And that's what his era would be in a second term. For Biden, you know, he gets in power and it looks like, again, a moderate Republican will be in power and will continue with business as usual. And ghouls like this will be very influential. All right, we're going to get to Lindsey Graham in a second here. Let me open up my seltzer first, bitch. I got some seltzer in this bitch. I got some seltzer in this bitch. 
I got some sucker in this bitch. Oh, yes, I do. Oh, yes, I do. <clears throat> Lindsey Graham um, is in a tight race for his seat in South Carolina. And um, Jamie Harrison is, I want to say neck and neck. But I'm not exactly sure about that. I think he's still down. I think he's still a little bit down to Lindsey Graham. There's a lot of money flowing into that race. And uh, so Lindsey Graham is a little bit scared. And he went on Fox News to talk about his race, among other things. And he laid out an argument here against Biden that I found particularly annoying. Now, I want to talk just for a moment about uh, what what happened with Joe Biden in the debate, toward the end of the debate, when he talked about oil and the impact you think that his transitioning out of oil is going to be in the election. Well, it's going to destroy our economy. If we go out of the oil and gas business, millions of Americans will lose their job. Everybody who produces oil in the Mideast will be stronger. We will lose our energy independence. If we go down the road charted by Biden and Harris, China and India will be the biggest winners. We're going to cripple our economy in the name of saving the environment. We're not going to ask China and India to change their behavior at all. But to destroy the oil and gas business uh, will be a boom for the Mideast. It will make us energy dependent. Our foreign policy will change. It's the dumbest idea in the world. That is on the ballot. The radical nature of the Biden-Harris regime could not be more radical than destroying the oil and gas industry, making us dependent on people in the Mideast who hate our guts. I'm perpetually amazed at how stupid our national discourse is. I really am. See, when it comes to oil and gas, when it comes to using fossil fuels, I mean, the obvious reality is, what are we going to do? We cannot. It is impossible to use them forever. Impossible. We see the damage it's causing. It's a guarantee that it's a matter of time until we get off of it. And we need to get the ball rolling because the clock is ticking and climate change is crucially important. But even if you want to put aside climate change, which we shouldn't, but if you want to put it aside to have this conversation with Republicans and people on the right, Guys, it is a gigantic economic opportunity to go down this path. Everybody's trying to burn Biden like, oh, my God, he said eventually at some point we need to get off oil. How, is, how do you think that that's a gotcha? And honestly, the date, he, I think he kept changing a date, making it later and later. Now it's like 2050. Really? You're going to pick an argument on that? Like, no, we need to stay on oil past 2050 and presumably forever because they trot out the same nonsense about, you know, this is going to destroy our economy whenever we try to make the transition. And it's like, no, this isn't going to be a disaster for the economy. It's not going to cripple the economy. It's not even going to hurt energy independence, because the whole idea is we transition off of oil, get a better source of energy or better sources of energy, and we become the leader in the world when it comes to this sort of renewable and green technology. How do they not get that? That there are millions and millions of jobs that can be created if we actually 
do this project and invest in this project. And there's also inevitable patents that U.S. companies can get where the rest of the world can be coming to us for the next source of energy. Take a lot of money from ExxonMobil and the oil lobby, and so they make these really stupid and smug arguments that really imply that we should be on oil from now until the end of time. So yes, I am perpetually amazed at how dim our national conversation is. This dialogue is ridiculous. You have Republicans still trying to play gotcha when Democrats are like, yeah, at some point maybe we should get off of fossil fuels and go into the future. And they're like, oh, how could you, good sir? How could you? These are the kinds of people who, when we had Morse code as our primary form of communication, people would look at you know, the evolution of ways to communicate. Look at the telephone, for example, and be like, are you crazy? We're telephone. We're going to be on Morse code forever. This guy wants to defund the Morse code industry. <laughs> Idiot. Or like horse and buggy versus the car. These guys would be like, are you, you want to stop with the horse and buggy? We've been doing this for so long and there's nothing wrong with it and it works and this is how it functions. My opponent wants to defund the horse and buggy industry. How could he? Ridiculous. I mean, these are the kinds of people, and funny enough, they like to pretend like they're the ones who are in favor of innovation. You know, part of their, you know, plethora of talking points to bolster capitalism is that, oh, capitalism brings about massive innovation, and, you know, that's a good thing. Well, now, apparently, when it comes to getting off of oil, no, 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 no innovation, no innovation. And again, the obsession with jobs, gone. They always talk about jobs. Okay, but if we do a Green New Deal, for example, emphasis on the New Deal part, you're going to create millions of jobs for the future with the new sources of energy. They don't, like, this, the definition of reactionary, that's what this is. They don't want to change anything. But, you know, look around, man. Are things really going that well right now? You should want to change quite a bit. That's the reasonable approach. Okay. Barack Obama is uh, doing some rallies for Joe Biden. You know, funny enough, somebody pointed this out. I think it was a great point. I think Bernie Sanders did 39 rallies for Hillary Clinton. And then he still got shit as if it's his fault that she lost. Insane. Obama's done what? Like five fewer rallies for Biden? And I guarantee you if Biden wins, he's going to get a lot of credit. So funny how it works. The narrative always overrides the facts. So it's just, it's sad. But anyway, I'm going to show you some of what people are viewing as Obama's best lines. And then I want to come back and talk about whether or not Obama still has the magic that got him elected in 2008 and 2012. But here's the truth. The pandemic would have been challenging for any president. But this idea that somehow this White House has done anything 
but completely screw this thing up is nonsense. More than 100,000 small businesses have closed. Half a million jobs are gone in Florida alone. Think about that. And what, what's his closing argument? That people are too focused on COVID. He said this at one of his rallies. COVID, 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 he's complaining. He's jealous of COVID's media coverage. If he had been focused on COVID from the beginning, cases wouldn't be reaching new record highs across the country this week. Our current president, he whines that 60 minutes is too tough. You think he's going to stand up to dictators? He thinks Leslie Stoll's a bully. You shouldn't brag about the fact that some of our greatest adversaries think they'd be better off with you in office. Of course they do. What does that say about you? I mean, think about that. Why are you bragging about that? Come on. And that doesn't make any sense. I, I, I mean, we've gotten so numb to what is bizarre behavior. We have a president right now who lies multiple times a day. It's not normal behavior. We wouldn't tolerate it from a co-worker. We wouldn't tolerate it from a football coach. We wouldn't tolerate it from a, a, a high school principal. We won't, We. I mean, we might have to put up with it if it was a family member, but we talk about him afterwards. Even Florida man wouldn't be doing some of this stuff. Why would we accept it from President of the United States? And you know what? I mean, sometimes it's almost too easy to make fun of it, but it's serious. There are consequences to his actions. If he was just on Jerry Springer or something, it, you know, you'd say, well, but but this is this is the most powerful office on earth. And when people see the president doing things like that, it emboldens other people to be mean and cruel and divisive and racist. I'm actually really interested what all of you think about this because I have uh, mixed feelings on it. So first of all, I just want to say, for the purposes of this segment, just put aside everything that we know about Obama and his record. And I just want you to look at this through the eyes of somebody who's relatively apolitical and, you know, they just, you're judging him solely on his capacity as a campaigner, okay? So put, put aside his record and everything. What do you think about it? Do you think he still has that 2008 magic, that 2012 magic, which led him to solid victories? So first of all, I want to state the obvious I think it's pretty clear that he presents a lot better than Biden. And I think it's pretty clear that he presents a lot better than Hillary. In fact, I think Biden presents better than Hillary, and Biden is not really all there anymore, but he still presents better than Hillary does. Um, Having said that, I don't know if I changed or if he changed or if just the country changed so much that we're at this point now, but I don't, I don't think he has that same 2008 or 2012 magic. 
I don't. I think that in 2008, you could argue, if you look back on the speeches and stuff, he did feel maybe a little too politician-y, but he was good enough where he won convincingly against McCain. But in 2012, I actually think he even ran a better campaign because he, he really leaned into more populist themes, went after Romney for outsourcing. Um, so I think he even ran a better campaign in 2012. Obama in 2020, I, don't, I think he lost a step. I think he lost a step. Now, am I saying... He lost everything? No. You could still see he's there, but I, it's not as inspirational as it was in 2012 and 2008. Um, so let's go through some of the stuff he says there, and then I'll get into how he could have improved, how this could have been better. Um, so he starts hitting him on COVID first. He says, you know, Trump's closing argument is to whine that the media is focusing too much on COVID. Like, that's insane. We have a pandemic. And over 200,000 Americans are dead. Of course the media is going to focus on that. And it is. They should. It's a rare instance where I am not attacking the media. I attack them all the time for almost everything. I'm not going to attack them for covering COVID too much. you got over 225,000 dead Americans. Of course they're going to cover it. They'd be crazy not to. That's like four, more than four Vietnam wars um, in terms of U.S. casualties. Then he goes on to the oh, Trump, th- Trump is scared of uh, Leslie Stahl, so he thinks she's a bully. So there's no way he's going to stand up to dictators. Then this line got under my skin. He basically said, well, you shouldn't brag that our adversaries think they'd be better off with you in office. What does that say about you? And the reason why this ignores me is because they did the same thing to Obama when he ran. They said, oh, the Taliban wants Obama to win. And they said, oh, Iran wants Obama to win. Now, why were Republicans making those arguments? Because Obama, not that he wasn't a peace candidate and he wasn't a peace president, but he was, in terms of campaigning, he was campaigning to the left of Romney and McCain on foreign policy issues. And so they trotted out the bad faith argument of, oh, the Taliban wants you to win or Iran wants you to win. So they're attacking Obama for wanting to make peace with Iran. Remember, he famously said, I'll meet with them without preconditions. Hillary went after him for that, and then the Republicans went after him for that. But why did he take that position? He took that position because he wanted to bring about peace. It's one of the things he he did that I will completely defend. But now, Obama's using the bad faith arguments that were used against him. Oh, our adversaries are bragging that they'd be better off with you in office. Well, yeah, I don't care that Kim Jong-un might want Trump in office because, yes, if Trump is saying, I'll meet with you, I'll talk with you, and let's make some sort of deal. And Biden's the one who's saying, no, we need to do more sanctions and do more military exercises on their border, and I don't want to talk to him. I'm sorry, but on that front, yeah, I agree with Trump. I agree with Trump, and this is just a nonsense argument. And he was confounded. He was like, well, that doesn't make any sense to brag about that. Of course it makes sense. If you say, hey, yes, there are people who are bad people, bad heads of state, whatever, but they want me in office because they know maybe we can get a peace deal. That is a good thing. That is a good thing. So stop with the gotcha politics. I hate that. And that's exactly what Obama's doing here. Um, then he makes the argument of, oh, Trump lies multiple times a day. That's totally true. But people knew that even before 2016. And they still voted for him and he won. So that's not a strong line of attack. Like, I, the character attacks don't land as much as policy attacks. And the other thing Obama says, I'm like, 
rolling my eyes at is the, oh, he's really mean, and so he's teaching everybody it's okay to be mean. Of all the things on the list, things to go after Trump for, being mean is really far down. I care more about what he's actually doing. Um, so that leads to my, my main takeaway, which is I think Obama, particularly in 2012, if he was campaigning against Trump, and I would have loved to see a race, Trump versus Obama, that would have been amazing to see them go head-to-head in an election. Like, if it, in 2016, if we didn't have term limits and Obama ran again, and it was Obama versus Trump, I wonder how that would have went. How do you think it would have went? Um, but I think what Obama would have done back then is he would have said, hey, under Trump, there's been over 100,000 jobs outsourced. I mean, obviously he couldn't make his argument in 2016, but I'm saying – if he used the mindset he had in 2012 today campaigning for Biden, I think Obama would have said over 100,000 jobs were outsourced under this guy. And he claims like he's the anti-outsourcing guy. What a joke. He's serving corporations. He's serving the industries. He cut corporate taxes massively. That's who he's serving. That's who he's representing. Don't be fooled by this charlatan. And the other thing is he could point out under Trump, we've had tens of millions of people have lost their health insurance. They've lost their health insurance because he did almost everything he could to get rid of Obamacare. He's really hurt Obamacare. And then mix that in with a pandemic, people are hemorrhaging their health care. They're getting fired and losing their health care. So tens of millions of people have lost their health care. Are you going to vote for the guy who had 20 or 30 million people lose their health care on his watch? Is that what you're going to do? No, we are the party of health care. We're going to get you health care. See, these are the arguments Obama would have made if he still had that magic. I don't think he has that magic anymore. I think he, like a lot of the Democratic political class, they're too much in their own bubble, that MSNBC bubble, where they've, they've moved away from substantive policy criticisms, and they've moved towards the character stuff. And I just don't think the character stuff is as persuasive. But having said that, listen, Biden's up big in the polls. It is what it is. But I do think that a lot of people are going to learn the wrong lessons if Biden wins and if Biden wins big. They're going to act like, oh, being an a empty suit politician who does platitudes and cliches is wonderful and it always works. But in reality, no. You could have ran a ham sandwich against Trump and the ham sandwich would have probably won. All right, next. I really like this segment. The segment that I'm about to do for you is one that you are going to get a kick out of. Crystal Ball of Rising did, uh, did an interesting segment, and she's done now multiple of these, where she lays out, hey, here's what I think a uh, best-case scenario for Trump would look like, a best-case scenario for Biden, a worst-case scenario for Trump, and a worst-case scenario for Biden. Um, so she's laying out what she thinks would happen in those scenarios, and I kind of wanted to steal that idea and tell you guys what I think that would look like. So I want to start here with a best-case scenario for a Biden win. So we have the election coming up. Let's say Biden wins. Let's say he wins in a landslide. Fast forward past, you know, Trump throwing his temper tantrum and the crisis and whatever, and Biden's in office, okay? What really is a best-case scenario? 
where that would make me the happiest, that would make the country, I would argue, it, it would make the country be in the best place that it could be. Um, so, first of all, it would be a Democratic supermajority. You'd have the Democrats crush so thoroughly that there would be a Democratic supermajority. And then with that supermajority, they would do some basic positive things. Now, listen, I don't, I don't have my head up my ass. I know what they're likely to do in a situation like that. I know that it's not nearly as far as I would like them to go. But realistically speaking, if we have a Democratic supermajority, we have a Democratic White House. What are some things that I could see them doing? I could definitely see them expanding Medicaid and covering more people with health insurance. Um, do I think they'll be able to get like a public option? Probably not. Probably don't think they'd do that. But they would do something to expand health care coverage to more people. I do think they would do that. The details of it, the specifics of it will be infuriating. You'll still have the health insurance companies in control and all that stuff. But I do think they'll do that. They'll, they will expand Medicaid, expand health insurance through some sort of way that's too technocratic, but nonetheless will give some people health insurance. I do think they'll do a $15 minimum wage. In fact, it already passed the House. They already voted it through the House. So if you have a Democratic Senate and you have a Democratic president, I do think they'll sign a $15 minimum wage into law, which would be amazing. Um, the other thing is I just think they'd handle COVID better. I think that Biden would do some sort of national mask program where he would, you know, get more masks to people. I think we would increase testing capacity. I think we would uh, probably better off in terms of having hospitals fully funded. Um, now, I don't think he would do a national mask mandate because he already indicated he would just incentivize the states to do it themselves. I don't know if he views himself as having the authority to do it, so maybe he wouldn't go far enough, but I still think we'd handle COVID better and the death count under a Biden administration will be a little bit less than what it would be under a Trump administration. It's possible in a best case scenario that they find some way of getting new stimulus checks to people. That'll be really difficult because no Republicans are going to break ranks. But if, again, if you have the Democratic numbers, you might be able to get stimulus checks to people. I think for sure they'll get us back in the Iran deal, which would be amazing. I think for sure they'll get us back in the Paris Climate Agreement, which would be amazing and definitely necessary. I think that there's a chance that you could have slightly increased taxes on corporations and the wealthy. I don't think it'll be nearly enough, but I think it will be something. Um, and then I could also see some sort of infrastructure deal getting through. I could definitely see some sort of infrastructure deal getting through. So those are the things that would happen in a best case scenario for a Joe Biden win, where Joe Biden is the least disappointing possible. What about the Republicans under this scenario? Well, I think that this might be one of the biggest upsides in this scenario, but I think the Republican Party can be completely fractured, completely fractured. And I also think the media in this situation would be sympathetic to a Biden administration, um, regardless of what the Biden administration does. So if the Biden administration acts very conservative, they'll defend it. If the Biden administration goes slightly less, they'll defend it. Because I think the media, by and large, CNN, MSNBC, they're corporate Democrat apologists. But the Republican Party, so if Trump gets destroyed, well, then you have that 30% block of the country that are the diehard Trump people. They're going to just be convinced it was stolen from him and that he won. And then you'll have, in D.C., the entire elite Republican class, the Republican establishment, 
they can't wait to get to a post-Trump era. They want more of a Mitt Romney-style Republican politics. And so you're going to have the 30% of the base that's like, we don't want that. We want Trump. We think it was stolen from him. And then you'll have the elite saying, no, 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 we have to try this. We have to go in this direction. Same policies, but different aesthetic. And I honestly think you can have a fracture that is long-lasting. Get the Trump-style Republicans, you know, who formerly were more Tea Party types, um, and then you got the elite Republicans. And there can be a clash there, not necessarily on policy, but on everything else. And the divisions can be deep enough where even a, a really shitty Democratic Party that never really does the right thing, they could get some positive stuff done. So anyway, that's what I think would be a best case scenario for a Biden win, where I would be least upset with it. Notice there's nothing on the list about getting Medicare for all because he's not for Medicare for all. I didn't really say anything about ending the wars because I don't think he's going to end the wars. Even in the best case scenario, Biden would draw down troops to like two or 3,000 in Afghanistan or Iraq and leave, leave them there. So I'll add that to the list. He'll draw down more troops in there, but I don't think he'll pull them all out at all. So there's nothing about ending the wars. There's nothing about a Green New Deal. There's nothing about Medicare for all. Um, you know, we could sit here and go through every single issue, but I think you get the gist of it. It would be inching in a centrist direction, which is better than an extreme right-wing direction. And um, you can only hope for what people are saying now that are on the left that they're right and that, oh, yeah, we'll keep fighting him once he's elected. But unfortunately, I think it's very likely that people aren't going to fight Biden once he gets elected because he gets elected and then, you know, the same people who criticize him like I do now will just be accused of helping the Republican Party by criticizing Biden because we've been through this before. If you criticized Obama in Obama's term, they would look at you and say, why are you helping Republicans, even though you're criticizing Obama from the left? So unfortunately, even if people try to push him left, which I'm not sure they'll even do that, but even if they try to push him left, he ain't going left. But I'm still giving you a realistic best case scenario where there are minor things that go in a positive direction. So there you have it. That's the best case scenario from here through the next four years. It would be Joe Biden winning a landslide and then Joe Biden doing the things I just laid out. And I mean, I hate to sound like Trump here, but we'll see what happens. All right, now, let me do the worst case scenario for Biden. What is the worst case scenario for a Biden win? So let's say we have the election, Biden wins. How could it be terrible? I already gave you how it could be good, let me give you how it could be terrible. So in this scenario, his win isn't that big. His win isn't that big. Um, and then he goes on to basically do what he's done throughout his entire career, which is namely to take the Democratic position and negotiate it down all the way to a Republican position 
then pass that legislation with zero Republican votes, and then in this nightmare scenario, the Supreme Court would slap it down anyway. So this is what I'm describing now again is a worst case scenario for a Biden win. Biden wins, but he doesn't win in a crushing way. It's not viewed as a mandate. Um, you still have to deal with the Republicans, handle the Republicans, handle a, what is effectively a fractured Democratic Party too. So he would propose his half measures up front, and then the Republicans would be totally obstinate and say, we're not interested in anything. And then he would go, okay, and he'd negotiate down his already half-measure position down to a Republican position. The Democrats will pass the Republican legislation, and then the Supreme Court will slap it down anyway. That's, that's what, honestly what I think would happen. Under There's a worst-case scenario for a Biden administration. Now, um, let me give you some more specifics of the worst that could happen with Biden. More war. First and foremost, we're not getting out of Iraq. We're not getting out of Afghanistan. We're not ending the drone war. We'll continue the drone war. Um, I think that um, possible that he escalates with Venezuela. I think that's possible, which would be terrible. I think that he would strike some sort of grand bargain deal on cutting Social Security and Medicare and then frame it as if it's a victory and as if we're reforming and saving those programs, I could see that happening. Now, I don't think the Republicans will work with him on almost anything, but if they do, it will 1 million percent be on their terms, not on the left's terms. I think that um, they could also strike some sort of health care deal that gives away even more money to the insurance companies. Um, I think even though Biden sucks, the media would protect him, and the left flank of the party would be shamed into compliance. So if the left flank tries to criticize Biden, they'll basically be told, you're helping Republicans shut up and fall in line, and I think they will do it. I think they will do it. And they'll go along to get along and accept whatever crumbs they get. And then also, and this might even be the worst part, Kamala would become the heir apparent from name recognition alone, from being VP, and all failures are blamed on Republicans and Democrats, and then they only move further right. So in this scenario, a worst-case scenario for Biden, the Democratic Party could become even more conservative and the Republican Party will become even more conservative. So they'll run right off a cliff, and then the Democrats will keep trying to meet the Republicans halfway. That I could see happening. So, again, this is the worst-case scenario for a Joe Biden presidency, where effectively he would get nothing done at all, and if he was lucky enough to get anything done, it would be just flat-out terrible stuff like cutting Social Security and Medicare and more war. That's my breakdown of it. I know it's not pretty, but the whole point of this segment is to give you the worst case scenario for Biden. Okay, now I'm going to give you the best case scenario for a Trump win, and then we'll get to the worst case scenario for a Trump win. Oops. 
I went to the wrong thing, bitch. I went to the wrong thing, bitch. All right, so I want to give you guys what would be the best-case scenario in a Trump victory. So let's say Trump wins this election, and then what's the best possible way it could go where we do the least amount of damage? Um, So I think right up front, it would be Trump saying, fuck it, and goes rogue and doesn't trust any of the advisors around him who have been telling him terrible things, people like Larry Kudlow and Mike Pompeo. Um, And then he goes ahead and ends the wars. Could a Trump going rogue do something like that? I do think it's possible, which is why, again, this is the best case scenario if Trump wins. Um, Because he has been, he keeps over and over, he's floated this idea of ending the wars, and then he keeps not doing it, presumably because his neocon advisors tell him don't do it, or because a general comes in and tells him, here's why we can't do that, sir. And he goes along, because by and large, I think he's somebody who has no core beliefs, and so he can be swayed easily by the last person that's in the room. So, but it is possible. This scenario is possible. That he says, forget it, I want to have part of my legacy be this, ending the wars. And so he could say, fuck it, and end the wars. This would be a best-case scenario under a, under a Trump win. Um, The other thing is, and this is less likely but possible, is that Jared and Ivanka convince him to add on to the First Step Act, um, which was the criminal justice reform that he did, which, to be fair, it's one of the best things he did. It was a first step. It was a step in the right direction. Um, And they could get him to expand on the First Step Act, and maybe they could convince him. I don't think he'd ever legalize weed, but I could see him being convinced to decriminalize weed. Um, But again, this would be under a scenario where Trump goes rogue effectively. Because by and large, what he's shown us is that in his time in office, he defaults to what the establishment wants him to do. That's what he's been doing. Um, The other thing which could could potentially happen, which wouldn't be terrible, is that we get some sort of infrastructure deal in the second term. Where, you know... Democrats and Republicans are like, okay, we effectively have a COVID depression or recession and we need stimulus. Let's make the stimulus in some sort of infrastructure deal, make it part of an infrastructure deal to try to almost copy the new deal in a way. Of course, they wouldn't go as far as the new deal, but something, some sort of infrastructure deal, even if it's half measures galore, um, I think that's possible as well. Now, the rest of his second term, honestly, what you want to hope for is for the love of God, just don't do any more damage. Just don't do any more damage. So you would really want a Democratic Party to obstruct on another level where he can't get any more tax cuts for the rich through, he can't get any more deregulation through, you know, he can't continue to damage the environment like he did when he got rid of the rules on the coal fire uh, plants, coal power plants. Um, so the best case scenario would be he does these handful of things that are good because he goes rogue, but then he gets blocked with every other thing he wants to do. 
That would be a best-case scenario for Trump. Now, obviously, I don't even need to say this part, but I'll say it anyway. This isn't going to happen. Again, what we're doing right now is just intellectual exercises. What would a best case under Biden look like and a worst case under Biden look like? What would a best case under Trump look like and a worst case under Trump look like? And this is the best I could come up with for a best case scenario for Trump. It's not going to happen. But in theory, you run, you run a simulation in 100,000 worlds and one time in Trump's second term would he do these things. So there you have it. That's the best case scenario for a Trump win. Um, Again, to copy Trump, we'll see what happens. All right, I'm going to take final quick break, and then when I come back, I still have two for you. I got one more scenario, the worst-case scenario for a Trump win, and then I also have Trump at one of his rallies. Was a little too honest again. So stay right there, everybody. We will be right back with two more amazing stories that you do not want to miss.
Alright, y'all. Let's bring this bad boy home. Let's bring this bad boy home. Okay. Laying out for you guys possible scenarios moving forward. We've gone over best case scenario for a Biden win, worst case scenario for a Biden win, best case scenario for a Trump win. Now it's time for worst case scenario for a Trump win. This is, uh, this is rough. So first of all, he's emboldened. Just won re-election. Yet again, he thinks he's Teflon Don because he kind of is. Um, he's very likely to continue to default to the path of least resistance, which is Larry Kudlow and Mike Pompeo. So expect more neoconservatism on foreign policy. Expect more cutting taxes for the wealthy and deregulation. Um, I think those things are inevitable in a Trump second term. I also think we get some sort of actual conflict with Venezuela and Iran he already killed Soleimani, which led to retaliatory strikes, and you know that was a tumultuous time, to say the least, and it still is bad. But I think it goes further. I think they might actually pull the trigger on regime change or an attempted regime change in both Iran and Venezuela. Um, they may have been behind that ragtag coup that happened not too long ago in Venezuela, or the attempted coup. But we will get worse. It will be worse. We will be more involved in these countries, even though... Trump pretends like he's anti-war, you know, every now and then. Beyond that, the pandemic is going to get way worse. It's going to get way, way worse. Um, Because he's been waffling on masks nonstop. He'll continue to waffle on masks nonstop. They'll continue to just insist on opening everything up because they care more about the stock market than they care about people's lives. And um, I think it will continue to be massively, massively mismanaged. So... That would be devastating. The only response from Trump and Congress is going to be bigger bailouts of corporate America as unemployment soars and as wages plummet. So to the extent they do anything economically, I think it would be maybe you get one more stimulus check, which is going to be peanuts, but it's very likely that they do more bailouts of corporate America more quantitative easing, as it's called. Even the Fed will get involved and pump a trillion dollars a day into the market like they did at the beginning of the COVID plummet. Um, So this is what I think is going to happen. And there's a worst-case scenario for a Trump win. And the Democrats are going to respond to Trump winning not by saying, whoa, well, now we learn our lesson, and we're going to go to the left, and we're going to be social democratic, and we're going to embrace Bernie-style politics. They will do the exact opposite. This is why accelerationism is not true. Because the idea that it's got to get as bad as possible before it gets better. No, if it gets as bad as possible, you know what the Democrats are going to do? Compromise with bad and move even further right. So if Trump wins, they'll think, oh my God, we got to run further to the right. We got to run further to the right. We got to appeal even more to Republicans. Obviously, this is the path to winning. So the Democrats would respond to a Trump victory by moving even further right.
And the media as well, under a Trump second term, forget it. Their brains are broken. You think they were conspiratorial in the first term with Russiagate? Russiagate's going to get pumped up with steroids and human growth hormone, and you're going to be like, whoa, what is going on? So I think that uh, there will be the division in this country, the, the partisanship in this country, it's going to be at record highs in a situation like this. Because culturally, Democratic elites cannot digest, cannot understand, cannot wrap their mind around a Trump second term. And what would very likely happen is more of what's already happened, except worse. Which is why I say more tax cuts for the rich, more deregulation, more conflict with Iran and Venezuela. The pandemic's going to get worse. Bigger bailouts for corporate America. And the Democrats respond to all of it, not by going left and being principled, but by going further right. So if Trump wins, by the way, I think this is a lot more likely than the best case scenario that I laid out for a Trump win. I think this is much more likely. I think, I think the worst case scenario for Biden and Trump, regardless of who wins, the worst case scenario, in my opinion, is more likely than the potential best case scenario that I laid out for you. All right, guys, let me give you the final story of the day. Final story before the election. This is fucking crazy. This is crazy. Wow. For those of you who are just tuning in now, um, I'll be doing an election day special with Joe Rogan and Tim Dillon and maybe even Alex Jones for a little bit. So live election day special with Joe Rogan. I'm looking forward to that. This is the last show before that. So anyway, Trump at one of his rallies uh, was a little too honest again. And, you know, he ripped the mask off of the empire. This is interesting. Because I've become friendly with many of the presidents and prime ministers, kings and queens, dictators, I must tell you, dictators. But I've become friendly with a lot of them. And they say, they say with two things, it's incredible what you've done with the economy. They always say that. They always say it no matter what. They say we have done the most incredible job. And they always start off by congratulating me. The next question is they want to buy our military equipment because we make the best equipment anywhere in the world. And sadly, with many of these nations who are not that friendly, we have to say no. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Sadly, we have to say no to a lot of these dictatorships who want weapons. Sadly. God, he's amazing. (laughs) He is amazing. Now, honestly, listen, the reality is, I don't know which countries he's referring to that are evil dictatorships who we want to sell weapons to, but we don't sell weapons to. Because I got news for you, we're always selling weapons to virtually all of them. That's what we do. That's what we do. So in the case of Saudi Arabia, Trump used to go after Saudi Arabia and say they're responsible for 9-11. And they're a bastion of radical Islam. He used to go after Saudi Arabia. And now, they've given him money through his hotel in D.C., and he turned around and did a multi-billion dollar weapons deal for them. 
arming the people who he knows are funding radical Islam, funding jihadists on the ground in Syria, for example, waging a genocide in Yemen. That's what they're doing. They're killing women and babies, starving the country. He's arming them. So I love that he's like, it's sad that I can't sell weapons to these dictators. Which countries have dictators that you're not selling weapons to? We sell weapons to dictators all the time. But isn't it amazing how, like, it's not even a thought for him for a second of like, well, hold on. You give weapons to dictators, they're probably going to use the weapons to brutally crack down on their own population or do something like Saudi Arabia is doing, which is massacre people in Yemen. It, it doesn't, like, he doesn't care. It either doesn't occur to him or it does, but he doesn't care that these weapons are going to kill innocent people because in his mind, he's like, I did an amazing deal. I did a tremendous deal. We'd make amazing money. It would be great for Boeing. A lot of people are saying Boeing's Honeywell, all these companies, Raytheon. These people are doing so tremendously well under Trump, and they love Trump. They love Trump, and we're doing amazing deals with them, and we'll be looking at it very strongly. Like, there's no moral core there. There's no moral core. There's no ethical code. There's no beliefs. It's just like, where are the winds going? Oh, this is what we do in Washington? Oh, okay, let's do this. But the upside is he doesn't have the ability to BS like the others do, where he doesn't know how to put the veneer of respectability over selling weapons to dictators. So he goes out there and says stuff like this. Again, the reality is we sell weapons to a lot of dictators. But apparently, I guess there are some where rules stop us from doing it. And he's like, isn't that a shame? Isn't it a shame? Shouldn't we arm all the dictators? I think we should arm all the dictators. Wouldn't that be incredible? I think that'd be incredible. I'm so tired, dog. I'm so tired. All right, guys. We are done, baby. I love all you. Um, I will see you on Election Day when I'm with Joe Rogan. Tune in. Probably see some new videos from me on the channel, too, that Corn and I will do behind the scenes. But anyway, love you guys. Peace.